I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. I, I have something. Okay. Um, the XFL died again. Oh. Uh, this, this time XFL. a quiet... <laughs> yeah, crawled under the porch and died. And I, I th- it was killed by the coronavirus this time. It's the one... Uh, we should add that number to the overall toll of, of deaths. But um, I'm starting to think the XFL was... It was kind of like the dinosaurs anyways. I've read this before that... When that asteroid hit, the dinosaurs were kind of on the downslope anyways, and they probably weren't going to survive much longer. But the asteroid cleaned it up. That's what I think about the the, the pandemic, is that this probably wasn't going to last anyways. And I, it was just a part of the hubris of Vince McMahon. Since the, the late 90s, I think it was about 2001, Vince McMahon um, had a competition with WCW, which was owned by Ted Turner. So that means unlimited budget. And he was, that's kind of the psychology of Vince McMahon can be read through this is that uh, he clearly hated Ted Turner more than any other human being on the planet. And I don't think Ted Turner gave him much of a second thought, which probably only (laughs) made Vince McMahon hate him more. But, he had somebody to to fight against, a really powerful, rich uh, media rival that he could go up against. And I think that it, we said this before about, you know, this monopolies don't tend to make things better. They tend to make things lazy. And I think they did that with Vince McMahon. And I think he desperately wants to fight somebody bigger than him. And he chose the NFL, which is as stupid a fight as you could pick as any. He could pick any fucking sport that doesn't have... You know, anything smaller than, like, Major League Baseball. You know, if he wanted to start a rival hockey league, he might succeed. But he wants to fight the NFL. He wants to right. fight something that he'll probably lose against. Because I think that makes him feel alive or whatever. And this is, like, his late-life crisis. Well, the problem is Vince. the NFL is filled with 22 Vince McMahons. You know yeah. what I mean? So, it, like, uh, like, the guy who owned Norelco owned the Patriots. So it wasn't just the one thing. This is, it was part of a, of a, um, like a stock portfolio and the NFL is just one wing. So for McMahon, he just, yeah, if he, he's the, he's, what, what is it? He's no longer the, the big fish in the small pond. He's just another fish. And then he's even small, he's even smaller because he's not trying to just start a team. He is trying to start a league. Right, And he has to compete with all of those guys all at once who have this incredible market share, who have this insane corporation, which gets treated, I don't know how, as a nonprofit, which if there's any fucking thing we need to change, it's that. <laughs> it's like that in the Disney copyright laws, which is like, how did this fucking happen level of craziness? Um, yeah, I just I look at this and I think he was just desperate to fight Ted Turner again. Um, because I think like with Ted Turner, the NFL probably didn't give him much of a second thought. They, they're going to do what they did last time, which is wait for the XFL to collapse again and then just raid it for ideas. It's kind of like a, an IP farm that I don't even have to pay for. <laughs> oh, 
sure. I guess there's some camera things that they chose from the last one, but it just kind of goes to who Vince is. And it's like Vince is a lot of the ugly tropes of, you know, being an ugly American and a carny kind of wrapped up in the the shell of a rich guy. And he really hasn't lost any of that sort of ugly carny side of himself. I don't know if he's like the latest thing with him. I've, I've gone back and forth on this, whether to do a panel episode on Vince McMahon at one point, but I've kind of ultimately decided you should, I don't know if I could do it because it's all low points. It's like (laughs) a couple good ideas and just being reminded of what just a cartoon cartoonishly awful person he is. But it's such a fascinating, awful cartoon. It is, but I don't know. I don't know if I'm the person to to dig this up, but like the latest thing with him. Um, do you guys know who Roman Reigns is, the, the wrestler? Yeah. So Roman Reigns uh, was being aggressively pushed by the WWE as the face of the company for a number of years over the cacophonous booze of a lot of the audience who felt they didn't like having this guy pushed on them. Uh, and Vince McMahon, of course, being who he is, uh, just kind of overrides that and continues to pretend that he's a good guy and continues to yell in the earpieces of the announcers to react as if those boos aren't happening. Uh, that's how hard he was pushing this guy as a, a head, having him headline WrestleManias and pay-per-views and putting the title on him a bunch of times, trying anything to get him over as the new John Cena, the new Steve Austin, the new Hulk Hogan. So uh, Roman Reigns has a history with leukemia. And it came back in a big way like a year or two ago. And he had to take time off from that. And weirdly enough, when he came back, the reaction was way more positive because people don't people are happy that he's not dead, which is good. And he seems like a really nice guy. So uh, because he has this recent history with leukemia, that he is in remission and was wrestling again. Uh, and he had to pay for his own health care. <laughs> oh, he has to pay for his own health care for one. That's the other thing. They don't yeah. they don't get health care as a wrestler because you are a private contractor, right. which is the, one of the biggest bullshit classifications for employment. But that's a different thing. Um, Amazon does the same thing to people. Basically, uh, Vince decided to do wrestling with empty arenas, which kind of is like stand up comedy with empty arenas. It just it feels weird. Because the interaction with the crowd is baked into the very art of professional wrestling. Right. You feed off like, it and, yeah, you're playing. You feed off the crowd. You also take cues from the crowd for what is and isn't working. Um, wrestlers obviously can't wrestle forever. So they have to do these rest holds where the bad guy gets the good guy in some kind of like an arm lock or something. And it gives them the opportunity to get a breath and get their second wind. And... Then you get to build up the tension of can the good guy overcome this? And they kind of call to the crowd to get the crowd pumped up. And at the at the height of that, the good guy breaks out of the hold. Now try doing that with an empty arena. And when he's doing the usual movement that he's been trained since the beginning of his career as a professional wrestler, he's doing all this stuff that doesn't make sense because there's no crowd that he's referencing and there's no sound. It also, that crowd also hides a lot of vocal cues that they throw each other. So it's just fucking weird period. Anyways, they held WrestleMania in front of an empty arena and because there is a fucking global pandemic going on and because Roman Reigns is immunocompromised, he said, no, I'm not going to wrestle. 
I'm I'm not going to wrestle and risk my life and the life of my family uh, for this. And now Vince McMahon, to the guy that he had pushed to the moon, the guy that he had made the face of the company for like the past half decade, he is editing him out of clips to promo other matches. Uh, they just did a promo package for a pay-per-view coming up. And as a bit of history, they put, play a clip from another pay-per-view. And Roman Reigns was a key element of that moment. And they like sliced it up with like a, a scalpel, an exacto knife, and cut out all of the Roman Reigns bits of that to pretend like he wasn't there. Vince McMahon is punishing this guy because he won't risk his health by trying to pretend he doesn't exist. That's who Vince McMahon is. It really makes me sad, Mike. It'll call you pal. <laughs> we've got this, the interminable times when we've talked about wrestling. Of course, I'm the outsider. It makes me sad because I know that this is a uh, this is sort of a, a genre of entertainment that you re- you really enjoy, that you have a history with, that you have known. You know, you've probably been following since you were a kid, and because of it all falling under, I mean, there were there was a time, there was a glorious time when there were competing national televised leagues, and now that it's all been zipped up under Vince McMahon, um, it's sort of like your only place to go unless you're lucky enough to have a vibrant local um, wrestling league near you. Um, but my thought is, is like. The, it should die <laughs> as sad as it is to say of the people who who love doing it um it should die and be and be broken up and scattered i ca- i cannot see how it benefits the whole sport the whole you know sports entertainment sport is- as it is by having it be, continue under this except for the fact of the sunk cost you know the like i said the fanboy stockholm syndrome that we talk a lot about is like people just can't let go because it's the thing that they know it would be better for the sport and it would be, be probably be better for all of the people who are working wrestlers if it was destroyed, Vince McMahon didn't have it anymore, and someone else who was a better human being decided we need it, we can run a company a different way that treats our employees as people instead of as meat. Well, is is the um I'm not an expert at all, but is uh Mike, I guess you'd know this. The the Chris Jericho company, is that making a dent? AEW, it's not making a huge dent, but it's bigger and probably more successful than any other competitor right now. I know it's owned by the billionaire who owns the Jacksonville Jaguars, the only football team that I have affection for and primarily because of the good place. Um, (laughs) It's like how I like the Ravens because they're named after Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) (laughs) The poem. I just, I, yeah, so uh, they're, they're doing pretty well. AEW, there's other things like uh, there's um, Lucha Libre USA, which I think is an American slash Mexican company. They kind of travel between uh, both countries. Uh, there Japan, are right? like New that. Japan is still really big. So there is other alternatives. The problem is that, you know, for all intents and purposes, as far as American media is concerned, um, WWE has a cultural and broadcast monopoly. And that's, sure. again, like we're saying, it's never good. I really think that if that company broke up, that would be great. The The only thing that good comes out of all of that stuff is that they just own a tremendous amount of 
media library. So if a wrestler needs to branch in, if they work for Vince McMahon and they want to create a history package of this person, they can do it over multiple companies. But the shitty thing is, if they go to AEW, they can't bring up any of that stuff. Um, right. If they do have a history with someone in a rival company, it's so weird be- that it's like that. So it's almost like there's a continuity that both does and doesn't exist when you leave one company and go to another. Whether you acknowledge that that company exists or not when you work for somebody else, the typical attitude in WWE is you just don't mention the competitor by name at all. And I don't know. I I look at this and think it would be so much better in the territory days because, it one, you have a lot more power as a wrestler. You can just leave. And there's other places you can go where you can have a comparable uh, pay and have greater creative control over your character. Back in the territory days, you owned the name of your character. So when right. Vince McMahon, you know, bought up the contracts of like Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper and Macho Man Randy Savage, they owned their names. So when they inevitably had a falling out with Vince McMahon and got offered a better job with WCW, they could take the na- their wrestling name with them. Uh, that started to change in the 80s and 90s uh, because – they owned the rights to, like, say, um, what is it, uh, Kevin Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, who are two big wrestlers who wrestled for Vince McMahon as Diesel and Razor Ramon. So when they went to WCW, they just decided to use their real names rather than the stage names they'd used under Vince McMahon. Then Vince McMahon thought he could recast Diesel and Razor Ramon with other wrestlers. Well, he is friends with Gene Simmons. He's friends with Donald Trump. So, you know, <laughs> it's worked before. There's there's an yeah. element of not really treating your employees like people and thinking that they are interchangeable. When Macho Man Randy Savage went to WCW, uh, Vince McMahon was under the impression that the uh, endorsement deal with Slim Jims was with WWE. And it was clear that Slim Jims didn't want to just swap out another wrestler. They're like, yeah, no, we want Randy Savage. We kind of built our brand around that dude. And uh, they followed him. And apparently Vince McMahon was fucking livid about that. That he thought he could just swap out someone else. I, I, I find it just incredible that you are a contractor for WWE, yet they own your name and likeness. And choose uh, who you wrestle, when you wrestle, yeah, uh, when you win, wh- how your career is going to go. Um, and then when you leave, any success that you got under that name, you got to leave that behind and come up with something else. You've got to come up with your, you know, your BS version of that sounds kind of like that name, but isn't that name. So it's it's really kind of garbage. Um, and if you're lucky enough, you're like Kurt Angle, who's just wrestling under his real name anyway, that one you can bring. But unless you do what the Ultimate Warrior did and actually change your legal name to Warrior, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. I remember when he was the Dingo Warrior. I used to watch WCC, World Class Championship Wrestling, WCCW. When he Yeah, he was like tag team partners with Sting, I think, back then. Well, this – oh, that's WC – no. Um I, Sting didn't wrestle out of Dallas. This this is like the Von Erichs, Iceman, King Parsons, and the Dingo Warrior who later became the Ultimate Warrior. This they, they were later bought out by. Uh, so by, he was by the McCann. penultimate warrior back right, then. Right, right, right. Uh, are you guys familiar with the Von Erichs? Perhaps the most tragic family. I, I know of. 
I know that they were like a massive deal in Texas wrestling and that their whole family fell apart. And it was yep. kind of a sad story. That's really all I know. Five sons down to one living son. Eee. Uh, uh, the one kid died. Um, they are a wrestling dynasty. Fritz von Erich um, was a heel from the like post-World War II era um, when Germans were bad. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, um, uh, raised his family to become wrestling kids. Uh, the first kid they had died, um, I think it was an electrical accident when he was really young. Uh, David Von Erich was the first big champion that they had. And then I think he died of an overdose. Uh, Carrie Von Erich, who became the Texas Twister, um, he lost his foot and uh, I think killed himself. And then oh, there geez. was... Um, I think the only one who's still alive is Kevin Von Erich, but then there was another Von Erich who OD'd and, or died, um, obviously who, who either OD'd or killed himself. Yeah, it was. it's just the most tragic wrestling family, but it's just indicative of the wrestling world and yeah. and how it just wears you down. And, uh, it, I, you know, they're... they're there's never any help for these people in, in, in these roles. I mean, when you look at well, there's no re- retirement. That I think even uh, Bret Hart once said, it's like, yeah, yeah I, Bret Hart said once that you get treated like a circus animal. There's a point where they just put a slug in the back of your head. They don't really care about you. You're not an employee, and if you're an independent contractor, you should be free to. If you're an independent contractor as like a plumber, you can go work for somebody else. But if you're under that kind of a contract and they have that control exclusively of you and what you do, uh, then you're a fucking employee, and you should be treated as one. You should be getting health care. And I, cause the fact that as a, as a wrestler, you have to find some kind of affordable insurance in a job where you're basically like a stunt performer. And that, I remember like, there's like, I think it was in Mick Foley's book. There's a, uh, a, a chapter where he talks about how when he had to go get health insurance, that uh, the implication that a lot of insurance companies had was, oh, that's fake. So it just be safe. So you got a really good deal. And once he found that out, a bunch of wrestlers signed on for that cheap insurance. And then that company found out real fucking fast how how often wrestlers got hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess they, they must have had a panicked meeting, like on the level of like Batman's penis about <laughs> uh, what, what just happened. We need to do something about this. How many hip and knee replacements have we scheduled this week? <laughs> exactly. How many people are just completely fucking their bodies up? And because um, you you would imagine imagine if Vince McMahon had to provide wrestlers with health insurance, Jesus Christ, that would be. Uh, then oh, I believe man, it's I a not for profit company because all your money would go yeah. straight to the to the HMO. Yeah, or- and exactly. And at the same time, I know that um, Jesse Ventura tried to unionize wrestlers in the 1980s, and uh, when the steroid trial was happening. Um, Ventura was one of the people who was testifying against Vince and he had a lawyer and Vince was being questioned by a grand jury. So if there was ever a time you wanted to ask anything and get a fucking straight answer from Vince McMahon, now was the time. And all Ventura wanted to know was who ratted me out about the union to Vince. So they (laughs) asked him that question. Um, you know, hey, you know, are your wrestlers unionized, Mr. McMahon? Oh, no, no, no. I, I think uh, Ventura tried to start something like that back a few years back. And he's like, oh, did Ventura come to you or tell you about that? Oh, no, no. 
Well, who told you that Ventura was trying to unionize wrestlers? Hulk Hogan. <laughs> what a that dick. Fucking rat. What a dick. Uh, Hulk Hogan. If there wasn't enough reasons to dislike that guy, the fact that he's a fucking scab, you, know, you could add that to the list. Um, <laughs> Hulk looks out for number one, man. Hulk. And that, that guy, uh, and this happens a lot in, in any kind of entertainment union, too, is that you get these pieces of shit like, say, Aaron Sorkin, who act as if, oh, well, if those people want to get paid better, then they don't need a union. They just need to write better stuff. It's like, one, that's not the way uh, it works. There's a lot of shitty people who make wonderful money and terrible people who don't. But the power of having an individual like that in your union is that the big people can protect the small people. They're right. the ones that have the clout that force the changes. And they only have the clout they did because someone else was on the fucking picket line decades ago fighting for the royalties of the credit that they used to not get at all. So, you know, you just that people who get success and slam the door behind them, fuck them. Fuck Hulk Hogan. You know, it's it's that same bullshit attitude is that, you know, he, he sided with the bosses. Fuck that guy. So I wanted to ask both you guys, because I know you guys are both parents. Um, sometimes. I, allegedly. I, sometimes. Well, allegedly. <laughs> I, I got this mostly uh, from working at a bookstore that had a kid's department for a long time. But I have noticed something about children's media that doesn't apply to, quote unquote, grown up media. You can just hear the air quotes on that. Um <laughs> is that they tend to refresh themselves and create new franchises on a scale that we don't. Like, we're still making stuff from the 80s over and over, but it seems like every five years there's a new massively popular children's media product. And I'm kind of jealous of how often little kids get new stuff. But I was just going to say, um, the, like, the last time Casey I was at your place after we finished recording we'd do uh, the Condor Man episode with Greg, I, we, we went upstairs and your oldest son was watching the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> the that old was, one with, that was, yeah. with Captain Lou? Yes. Yeah, he was watching the Captain Lou Albano and I was just like, what the fuck? How has this got legs? <laughs> um, I mean- I loved it as a kid, but I was settling for stuff. Where, yeah, I'm sorry, Casey, but your son has a fucking oh, oh, the oh, the world has opened up to him and given him riches, <laughs> and he's watching the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. Listen, Mike, I can only explain it this way. There's a reason Chef Boyardee and McDonald's are popular with children. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, we're not dealing with, with sophisticated tastes. But there's the, yeah. to answer your question though, Mike. I mean, if you let's just take children's lit as a as an idea is, yeah, there is. If you you know, if you only wanted to fill your child's head with like Sesame Street books um, and music or whatever, then you you could do that. Like, there's obviously the merchandising arm of things that were popular when we were children are still around, and Lord knows that a lot of the things that were popular in the 80s now that we're just remaking everything from the 80s of course you can find you know transformers stuff and gi joe stuff and uh you know my little pony stuff that's all that's all recycled for them but if you just the the spectrum of people of writers and illustrators who are making new characters and new ideas and um i think captain underpants i think dave pilkey and um, Captain oh, Huff. so good. They, Dogman? They, and, and Dogman, his sort of like spinoff of his weird little universe um, is so amazing. Like the breadth, uh, the breadth of it, how clever it is, also how approachable it is for kids is so great. It doesn't, it's not a reboot of anything else. It's just what he made himself. And 
there are so many kids who are learning to read off of it and wanting to draw their own comics based on based on that. And I even think that the Netflix show, the movie is great, and I think that the Netflix show is incredibly funny. is is very very well Mike, made. They did an episode that's a choose your own adventure. That's so well done and it's it's clever in that it will lead it leads you to the path you have to take. You have to keep kind of redoing it. Scene by there certain scenes you have to jump back and forth to to get to the actual end of the episode. But it's 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 a great use of, of the Netflix of, of the medium, actually, of Netflix and television. It, it's really Pilk is it is it Dave or Dav? Is I think it it's Dave? Dave. I think it's Dave Pilkey. It's D A V is how he spells I, his name. D A V. Working in a bookstore, we always said Dave. Yeah. Okay, it, but I mean, so he, he's funny and he, smart and subversive. And there's and he's just one. He's one example of the a breadth of of people who are you know now in the age of publishing. It's not. It's no longer the 20th century anymore, and so. I'm sure everybody's working off of small small presses and small runs and having a really, really hard time getting their books out there. If you're not in Scholastic, if you're not under the publishing behemoth of Scholastic, I'm sure it's so, so, so hard to get it out there. But there's like there is no shortage of, of incredibly talented people and uh, uh, writers and illustrators. And it actually is this is one of the one of the many things that's a great treat is being able to as a parent to experience how uh how creative and how surprising and interesting some of the literature is and as an adult being able to appreciate it and also just from the just from the idea of experiencing something through their eyes as well which is something you don't normally get when you're watching you know when i'm watching the latest netflix whatever um it's just something that i'm i'm absorbing myself you get to sort of experience it along with them and then bounce it off through them. And so you gain a different appreciation than you would have just reading through it yourself. Right. It's kind of kind of fascinating because I'm looking at this in terms of how different media can potentially be in 20 years once these kids grow up and are making and creating art of their own. Because I like comics are a really good example of this is that you had this kind of holding pattern with comics for a number of decades because of the comics code. And then because of all of the people in our age bracket who grew up and became comic, like Jeff Johns, for instance, being a person who (laughs) undid a lot of the changes that started to happen with characters in the DC universe over the course of the eighties and going, Nope, I'm going to bring back Hal Jordan. I'm going to bring back the Barry Allen version of the flash. I'm going to revert things back to the way they were when I was a little kid, but I want it to sort of follow me into adulthood uh, rather than sort of let, you know, Kyle Rayner and Connor Hawk and Wally West allow them to just become the new versions of these characters the same way that Hal Jordan and Barry Allen and those characters were able to take over from, you know, Alan Scott and Jay Garrick and all the characters that were created with that name in the forties. Allow this thing to sort of recreate itself. So there's this kind of uh, stasis that I think comics have been caught in that I think they're finally breaking out of because of this youth media, because of things like Dogman and Captain Underpants, because of things like Kazu Kabuishi's uh, Amulet or Jeff Smith's Bone or the works of Raina Telgemeier. So that the, the kids that are reading and getting into comics now through like the Scholastic Book Fair are not reading the same comics 
comics that we read. Good, right? So there's going to be this whole whole new spin on comics in the next 20 to 30 years that is probably going to finally break them out of being st- – I mean, I love superheroes to death. I always will. But I don't think superheroes should be the only kind of comic that gets released ma- in a mainstream way. And I think that we're at the point now where it's out of our hands. The people that are going to control comics in the future are going to be these young artists. And the fact that they're excited about creators – rather than just character franchises, to me is one of the most exciting things that Agreed. I'm seeing coming out with that medium. I agree, because it puts the power in the creator's hands, not in the company's hands, which is a hundred times better. Secondly, I think it's great because it redefines the idea of comics as a medium and not as superheroes, which I think just yes. became too synonymous. And basically, it, it just became a detriment because, I mean, I how can I put this? I used to have a friend who I used to have to tell just because it's indie doesn't mean it's good. You know what I mean? Like, so if, uh, yes, if, if you just had, um, I'll call it like the mumble core version of comic books, uh, or navel gazing, a, a lot of it just, that didn't mean it was good. It just meant you didn't have capes on it and it was a different version. And it was good only in the sense that it's, it's something, it's, it's an alternative to, uh, green lantern or whatever but that you know there's, there's an expression just because you put uh syrup on it don't make it pancakes <laughs> it's just it, it just wasn't great but I, I i love the fact that well one every, like if all the dave pilkey books teach the kids how to make their own comic books and encourage them how to make their own um what do they call it? flip books mm-hmm. where they're doing the really rudimentary animation by just having get by redrawing some Redrawing a pose is one element that moves, right, from frame to frame. Yeah. Um, and as an, as animation programs become more uh, commonplace for kids, I mean, my kid's coding, you know, and he's seven. Um, I just, I'm excited to see whatever they're going to come up with because technology is not going to be a problem. Budgets aren't going to be a problem. Publishing platforms aren't going to be a problem for them like they were for people our age. I don't know how old Casey is. I think he's about 25, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm sharing in the same bit of optimism from you. And I, I think there's a, there's the only other sort of caveat that I have on it that is a little interesting. Um, and we don't, we obviously won't know how it plays out because we'll be dead. We won't know. Or well, we might be dead or it'll be so far into the future that we're not really sure how the combination of just sort of, ubiquitous media is on uh, on a new generation but um you know my son is like a netflix addict and there's a lot of amazing there's a lot of amazing animation that i would have loved to have seen when i was you know 10 or 11 years old because of how varied it is and how it's not broken up by commercials and how you can watch it all if you want to watch it um there and though that's curated to some extent right uh the presumably there are people at netflix who are either a spending the money to develop it and giving it to the producers to be able to make it or b just buying it from some other studio that's making it um well they they use their algorithms right (laughs) ai is making all the decisions but the but there is something to be said for the constraints of of you know on a saturday you have one of four channels and you have a three hour, four hour block of stuff um, that you could actually watch. And your sort of imagination is only be, only able to be fired up 
a certain degree, unless you, you know, have a VHS player or whatever, um, a VHS yeah. recorder. And the, uh, the only thing, the only caveat I'd say is I don't know when I think people start to create when they're, they're restless, when they're like, Oh, I've, I have all these yes. great ideas bouncing around in my head because I've been reading this book and I went and saw, you know, this comic book and, uh, you know, my friends were talking about this when they have stuff uh, bouncing through their head. I worry that they're satiated too much. Um, and if you're satiated too much, it's just like Thanksgiving dinner. You want to fall asleep. I, I don't think that's going to be the case. That's just, that maybe is my dad anxiety, coming through but i'm just worried yeah. be like well they'll they will always have something to consume and so they'll never be like well i want to create something better you know like gi joe is actually dumb so i probably i want to make it an is. action hero an action <laughs> story that makes more sense and isn't quite as as goofy as gi joe they'll always have no shortage of just like thousands upon thousands of shows endlessly to be like oh yeah okay i'll, I'll just watch that instead i think it'll just kind of even out eventually i mean if you look at I, my my son has what I call the Thunderbirds or Go or Go problem. Um, he binged all four seasons on Amazon as they became available, and there's a fifth season that's only been available in the UK that has, to 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 our knowledge, no release date in the US. Um, so what's he done? He's gone to YouTube to watch people watch. <laughs> he's watching people recording the Thunderbirds. And he's watching bad re recordings of these episodes. Sometimes right. they're just clips. And, you know, people skirt around the YouTube uh, copyright issues by slowing down the video like a, a tad or having some other sort of visual element to kind of throw off whatever. However, YouTube can identify something as copyrighted material. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree. Case. There's a problem with getting everything at once because it doesn't um, it doesn't teach you any patience. And, uh, it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't really let, let, let things swim in, in your head. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know how, uh, I often wonder about the age of criticism to take it back to our first conversation, earlier conversation, the age of criticism, when you can just cycle through a series in eight hours and not really have to think about what was just said or done. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I I think that's the way my I think that's the way my wife uses Netflix actually as more of a more of a sedative than it is the stimulant. You know, I uh at, and maybe maybe this is just maybe there's enough for everyone. Maybe the long tail is so long that there's enough for sort of flavor for everyone. But I have a feeling that some people use it because like. It's a, it is it's addictive to want to binge and then you're sort of like I've, I've just got it all I'm fine I'm gonna go to bed now um, and some people are like whoa this is great this is like I would I want to talk about this like wouldn't it be interesting if uh, you know I could I could write a story about these characters because I like them so much I worry that the sedative part is sort of more of what people are looking for versus sort of being energized by something. Sure. Um, so much so that I have, I've just, I've almost exclusively just watched films now because I, the one thing that I love is Ooh, when la la. a movie. Yeah, I know. Look at me in my, in my ivory tower, <laughs> my ivory tower. Hey, in Casey, quarantine. are you wearing a beret right <laughs> yes. now? Yeah. And an ascot. <laughs> I'm wearing boots, combat Smoking boots. Jacket. Um, the, but I mean, uh, films have, and this is partly just because of the one that I love the most, but films have a beginning and an end. Um, and with the Not exception, anymore. with the exception <laughs> of, yes, yeah, so the franchise or something that, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of big ticket Hollywood stuff is all made to be sort of on this continuum, but 
the majority of films being made in the world are filmmakers wanting to tell a story that has a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, And then there are different voices and there are different reasons for different reasons for wanting to make that story. And each one of them is totally singular and you can have incredibly diverse, unique and singular experiences um, and, and, and you sure you could fire up another movie and move on if you wanted to, if you're just wanting to be, to glut there, or you can let it sit with you because you know what, the next movie you're going to watch is going to be nothing like that one. Um, and that's the, well, that's the way I've combated it. Otherwise it's so, so super easy to be like, Hey, next generation is on Netflix. I could watch that episode for the 40th time if I want to, I just, I don't know. And yes. I have, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. There's no, I don't think there's a good answer to deal with the kids. I, the kids will, the kids will be all right. I'm not, I, I, this is old man. <laughs> They'll be fine. This is old man yells at cloud. They'll, they, they'll come out of it better than we were. We did for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, like I, I lament the loss of liner notes and, uh, having to just absorb an album because it was work to change from either fast forward through a track because you're listening to a cassette or, uh, or, move the needle back and forth but uh yeah you know these are just like like you say casey these are the complaints of an old man yeah it's it is funny i watched the uh they'll have their things (laughs) yes apple tv just aired a documentary a spike jones documentary about the beastie boys um and it was sort of oh yeah how is that it was it's very good it's one where they he of course spike jones is crazy and wants to do crazy stuff so they had um, the two surviving members, Adam Horowitz and Mike Diamond, uh, on stage in a theater in Brooklyn, and they sort of like like did a routine where they sort of explained their story as with a backdrop with a projection on it, and so they so Spike Jones's sort of his unique sort of style came through with how they put it together, and so it was a hybrid kind of a documentary. And it's great. I mean, anyone who has even a passing interest in them as a musical group or just music in general should should uh, should watch it. And the thing that I came away with, though, is how incredibly weirdly singular the idea of a success story, of an artistic success story, Beastie Boys were, that would never happen again. And I'm not saying never happen again in the way that dumb people do when they are unable to realize that the future has <laughs> things that you don't can't predict. But in Beastie Boys' story, they were just like, kids at in a place in a location where two incredibly popular new styles of music were being born punk and hip-hop they were right in a like a physical location uh they lived in a physical location in a era before pervasive information technology where them just being in spaces around people clued them into relationships and sounds and ideas and skills um they also happened to be starting right at the birth of MTV as a new way uh, for people to access, basically a wholly new way for people to access music, to uh, to discover music and and appreciate it, as well as like it, it th- forward through to the birth of the internet and uh, you know like incredibly sophisticated mass media. That story will never happen again because the idea of people's artistic output and the way people consume media is completely and totally different the way that uh music as a commodity was worth just billions of dollars before when it could be sold as physical things is now gone um the idea that you could repurpose a medium like television to showcase using it as a new kind of art form to showcase uh commercials essentially for for uh 
you know, for uh, music is now been obviously been <laughs> long gone now. And also the fact that um, just these singular genres can uh, musical genres that can splinter off from other things and become these giant global phenomenon is also over to because everything is fractured. Everything is a subgenre of a subgenre. And I just got the profound sense of being like really quite wistful um, about it of thinking like this is the kind of thing that just doesn't won't ever happen again because um, the 20th century w- won't be like the 20th differently century. Differently though, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah, it has to happen differently. I mean, that's that's a big the big change is that it's always. I mean, we don't have the technology that our ancestors had, who were creating and great. You know, whatever it is that they used to get the message out died with them, and we created a new thing that was scary to them, and <laughs> then other young people create things that are scary to us. And I think this is just a. I mean, we are yelling at a cloud no, right I'm, now. I'm not trying to say Except that people... Except we're li- yelling at a literal I'm, internet I'm, cloud. I'm, I'm not saying that, like, there won't be superstars who, because of them being in the right place in the right time and having talent and really Irish, gumption, yeah. uh, and that, that won't happen. I- <laughs> PewDiePie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, hey, he's not he's not just about yelling at video games. He's also an on-ramp to, apparently, <laughs> Nazism. So you got all kinds of stuff. Anyway, circling back uh, to the Nazis. Yes, we are. Yeah. I have to ask you. They are an ongoing. Ma- problem. I have to ask Mike this because I. Uh, this is when you search for it on the internet, you only get people who are interested in saying one of two sides is. So he's got a tattoo of an iron cross on his arm, and yes, and I was like, and I was like, how do you? How does how does someone square that circle? And so I was typing in, and they were like, someone was like, you guys are ignorant, saying that he must be a Nazi. It's a Georgian cross, which is predates the Nazis and the SS or whatever. I don't know which brand. But the swastika, swastika predates the Nazis yeah. too, but it's still a fucking so I thing. We sort know of got co-opted. It might have started as something, but it, that's what it is now. There was a day you could wear a pillowcase on your head and not be called a racist. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. But guess what? <laughs> you know? It's not. It's done. <laughs> that time is done. Yeah. It's, 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 oh God. But again, it's not just that he has the Iron Cross. If that was the only piece of evidence. It's also that he yells racist shit and does that, oh, I'm just doing it for the lulls. It's that fake yeah. veneer of irony that you you throw over something that I was just joking. But it's not satire if you're just doing something that is offensive. It's satire when you have a fucking point and you're actually talking about a thing. You're embodying a thing to dismantle and destroy that thing. And he's friends with Nazis. He's friends with other YouTube channels, which he has promoted, which are overtly Nazi. It's kind of the boiling frog bullshit where it's like, okay, well, that's a little bit hotter. They're they're saying white supremacist stuff but talking about anime and then just kind of slowly move towards that. The fact that he has outright, you know, paid a bunch of people on Fiverr to hold up a banner that said, kill all Jews. <laughs> I mean, that's who he is. It's a, he, he can say it's for the lulls, but he still did that. No. He's a fucking Nazi. He just doesn't have the same courage of his conviction that the rest of them do. It's just, you know, he has a, he's a bad person. He is an awful fucking person. And he's terrifying to me, even though there's a million people like that. One, because he's the most successful YouTuber. But two, because his audience is fucking 14-year-olds. Yeah. For real. Who are very That's scary to me. And, yeah. 
It's and not. I'm just, you know, this is how a lot of these people operate is that they operate under the it's just a joke cover where if something falls on its face and go, oh, I'm just being an edgelord. And, you know, it's I mean it, but I don't. But I mean it, but I don't. And, you know, it's it's fucking stupid. And I think all of us have kind of fallen into edgelord bullshit before. But I think let's just back away from it. Let's back away from shock for shock's sake. There has to be some other thing. I have a dark sense of humor, but I want to make sure it's actually about something. Use it for good. It's not Yeah, use your powers for good. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm just Mike needs a hug. Now where, <laughs> oh, thank you. I see, I'm trying to stop myself from being in exactly this place right now because uh, on one hand, it's a lot of pent-up pandemic frustration, frustration at the way the world has crumbling in various ways that really frustrate me and discourage me. It's also playing on, again, I, I share the imposter syndrome and the anxiety. And I also share the anxiety of, oh, is this, am I just starting the tirade that kills our Patreon? <laughs> and I have that in the back of my head too. I think, and I, I don't I know. Think We're I, safe. <laughs> as, as somebody who's listened to the show for uh, over what, two years? I don't know how long. Is that how long you guys have been? We've been around anyway, for a while. We've been doing this for six yeah. years. Okay. Well, that's over two. Seven years. Um, uh, you've been very transparent, Mike. So I don't think you, you're you saying anything that you haven't. You know what I mean? Like You, you wear your yeah. politics on your sleeve. Casey kind of does, I think. Out, out of, and, and certainly Sam. Oh, Casey does. And, and uh, Sam and... and uh, so, yeah. I, I don't think you're going to lose anyone by just being yourself because you've been yourself the whole time it's well, not like if um you, you're not turning heel do you know what i mean well we we yeah. wanted to take this moment to announce that we have a new sponsor chick-fil-a <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> <laughs> radio versus the martians is hosted by mike gillis and casey doran this podcast is recorded in beautiful valverde in seattle washington our chief engineer is casey doran and our editor is mike gillis Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. We're not part of the experiment. If he gets to bring random good people into it, I should be able to bring in random bad people. Call up Elizabeth Holmes. No. Henry Kissinger. No. PewDiePie.